Welcome to the Better Clinician Podcast with myself, Ben Cormack, and also Adam Meekins. The Better Clinician Project brings you high-quality education at a ridiculously low price. This podcast will bring you topics that are relevant to modern clinical practice, all done with a bit of fun and humour. Nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another one of our Better Clinician Project Thoughtful Thursdays, where myself and Mr. Cormack sit down, debate, discuss, disagree a little bit sometimes around various different topics that the BCPers throw at us. Yes. So looking forward to it this month, Benny Boo Boo. I am going to get down and dirty with it. I'm going to get right in there. <laughs> in there like swimwear. Ah. All right. So without too much fucking around at the beginning, which we yep. tend to do, we're going to dive on straight in and Boom. take the first question from a BCP called Stefan, Stefan Rasmussen. So he's asked a really interesting and quite thoughtful question around psychological factors. He wants to know what are some psychological red flags, what to do about them, and where to find some good information on this subject. So, Benny Boober, what are some psychological red flags in a patient? Yeah, so look, again, I mean, let's start off with some of the... So, I think the first thing to talk about is, I don't know if you do this, I generally don't do psychological screening off the bat. Well, what do you mean by screening? Do you mean asking well, so, a few questions or giving them a questionnaire to fill yeah, out? So, so I think some people might approach just general clinical practice by giving out lots and lots of potential screening questionnaires around depression, around anxiety and all these other things. And I must say that isn't something that I tend to do. No, I no. don't either. I, I find too many questions, particularly on the first appointment. Yeah any paperwork and stuff that's too much it just get it acts as a barrier to building a relationship with a patient so i don't like to do that all the time at the beginning no. yeah and i could imagine if you worked in like a specialist pain clinic why you might do that yeah but i still think it can be a little bit of a barrier off the bat yeah, so in general practice in in day-to-day -day job in physiotherapy i don't think it's needed a lot of the time yeah, so I think there's this more of this idea of yellow flags, isn't there, rather than red flags when it comes to psychological stuff in some ways, isn't there? Yeah, but we want to talk about the red flags, mate. What are some of the really concerning features of a psychological problem in a patient yeah, and that, that, would and start, that would start to go, hold on a minute here, this is out of my professional scope of practice and there may be some other things or people I need to refer on to. Yeah, yeah, and that was what I was trying to kind of get to. Well, that... you're going around about the bushes <laughs> a very long <laughs> fucking yeah, way. Then... Just get to it, Cormac. Right, just so if we are talking about strong red flags, I had this the other day, actually, and this was someone discussing some suicidal thoughts. Absolutely. So that's a massive red flag. So again, if somebody is mentioning self-harm, suicide, ending it all, that is a huge psychological red flag that you want to pay attention to. Don't ignore it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I think for me, I, I I think that when I become uncomfortable talking to people, is that's when it starts to become again. Is it you know we're weighing up this kind of um, you know this this index. It's not an index of suspicion so much. It's an index. You know, it's a seesaw of concern, isn't it? <laughs> Potentially, and I felt and I felt out of my depth. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. When you feel out of your depth, you normally are out of your depth, yeah, and yeah. therefore, you know, with stuff like this, you don't want to be fucking winging it. You don't want to be just trying to, you know, work your way through it or ignore it. That I have heard and seen some other people do as well because they are feeling out of the depth and they don't know how to deal with it. Yes. So, again, when somebody has got some red flags like that and they're mentioning suicidal thoughts or tendencies, that yeah. needs to be, first of all, recognised and you need to tell the person or the person who shared that with you, thank you for telling me that, okay? I do think that needs to be probably looked into a little bit more. However, I don't think I'm the best person for that. Is it okay if we try to talk around maybe seeing somebody else or getting yep. somebody else involved to help you with these thoughts yes. that you've been having? Someone who is better equipped to deal Absolutely. with those kind of things. I think that's important with the terminology, isn't it, that we find someone that's better equipped to deal yep. with that. I, I had one, well, quite a while ago now, a similar situation, didn't want to commit suicide, but did want to chop his own arm off. Right. Like and from a CRPS type of yeah, yeah, so yeah. just cr the worst chronic pain for years and years yeah. and years. Um, lots of post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Yeah. as an ex-soldier from the Falklands War as well. So he's suffering a lot um, in a very bad place when he came to see me. And you could tell that he was not fucking about. He, he was at the end of the tether with his, you know, experiences with healthcare because yeah. he'd been pushed around from pillar to post. And uh, quite dead face, calm, said, if you don't sort this out, I'm going to Hungary. I'm paying this clinic that takes £10,000 to uh, voluntarily amputate your arms. I'm going to chop my arm off if yeah. you don't get this sorted. Yeah. and I, That's I a red flag. You, That's the yeah. psychological red flag. Well, I think also that any, any signs and symptoms that may be associated with things like PTSD, I think yeah. are, are, are things outside of what I'm usually dealing with i think any discussion around previous clinical diagnoses of depression or anxiety again that's where history is important so it's not just things that you're picking up in terms of you know inference it's also actually determining that this person has had recognizable psychological issues in the past as well yeah. you know that i think that's important but i think anything like personality disorders you know, anything like PTSD, anything like suicidal thoughts, anything where voices are being heard or instructions are being given, you know. Visions this, and apparitions and stuff like uh, that. You, 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 you know, you're talking about stuff that, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think unless you've had some really, really strong training here, which I haven't had that strong, you know, I would regard myself as psychologically informed. Yeah. Um, but I certainly, you know, probably not even that much, but um, I certainly would say you running into stuff that is the, uh, well out of the realm of your your average MSK person, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, well, and this is when... a psychopathology. You yeah, know, exactly. this is actually yeah, it, it's not just a psychological issue. It's a, yeah. it's an actual psychological pathology that needs professional help and treatment. And physiotherapists are just not equipped or trained to deal with that. So yeah, well, some are more. 
I, I, unless you've got the qualification of a psychotherapist or a psychologist, then no, I'd say okay. you, 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 even yeah, with okay. some postgraduate training, yeah, okay. you're not equipped to deal with this type of stuff. So go and seek some help. Go and get talk to your supervisors, your managers, fellow clinicians, and 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 you know get some support about you know this is what's been presented to me. Discuss it with other people, and also you know make sure that the person is informed that this is what you're going to be doing, and you know signpost them on urgent need to the appropriate services. I think that's the point, isn't it? That maybe from a cl- clinical MSK perspective. Be actually being more informed or more trained is actually being able to recognise it better rather than being able to maybe treat it. And knowing what to do with it. So I think, yeah. again, another key point here as well is always plan and prepare for the worst case scenarios here. So, you know, dealing with people from these type of psychological conditions, you know, you don't want to be flapping around not knowing how to act when it, they do present to you, because that just adds another level of stress and anxiety to the situation. It's already stressful and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, again. So make sure that if you're working in clinics where potentially these things could happen or occur or present to you, that you know what the systems and the processes are yeah. to deal with it. Because you've got a duty of care to the person to pass them on down this pathway. And again, you know, you, you could say the same thing with, with other things as well that are not really psychological red flags, but things that are outside of your scope of control. So, you know, somebody that's being abused or being taken advantage of as well, if that comes out in an assessment, you have a duty of care to act on that and you need to know what are the processes and procedures to be able to do that. Yeah, which I think is often tougher for those who, who you know, run their own game, if that makes sense. So your sole practitioner, I think, is the is the least well-placed often to, 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 to have to deal with that, if I'm being honest. You need a network, you need yeah. a process, and you need a system that says, you know, I've got it in place, that says if this was to occur, if this was to present to me, I was to have somebody that I've got concerns about being abused or taken advantage of or has got some suicidal thoughts – this is the chain. This is the flow chart that says I have to go through and this is what I need to do. Have it prepared before it happens. And luckily and hopefully it never happens. You know, it may happen once in your career, twice in your career. But you're able to deal with that but situation. you've got that process in and it just, it just means that you've got that, you know, stressful, anxiety-inducing environment a little bit more under control. Yeah. Good stuff. Well done. There we Good go. Good question. I like it. Yes. I think it's a very relevant question, isn't it? It's a very helpful Absolutely. question. Right. What we got next? Right. Next one, then. This is another good one. This is from a regular BCPer on a thoughtful Thursday who likes to throw questions at us. And uh, unfortunately, we still can't pronounce the name very well. Oh, is it so. Femke Femka. Femke Femka. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Femke or Femka, we will actually say your name correctly. Nah. Not today, but Not at some today, point, yeah. we will do. Yeah. So Femke's asked us about how do we feel about maintenance sessions? Patients often ask if they need to come in every month to remain pain-free. How do we address this without them feeling dismissed or misunderstood? Great question again. Yeah, personally, I don't, I, I think maintenance sessions are okay. It depends on what we're focusing on. Oh, you unethical money-grabbing soulless bastard, you. Well, I've got to pay for the Ferrari. No, because if someone came in to me and said, you know, I'd like to actually come in and see you once a month to do some exercise stuff or to discuss my exercise planning, or I would like you to act as more of a coach 
or I've got some things that I just want to bounce off you once a month. I'd be quite open to that. I don't think, you know, I think your job may be more like a PT or a coach. Um, And actually, I quite enjoy doing that. And I have done that for people. And in fact, I've done that with things like I've had patients who then came to see me to do some boxing with me over the years. So I think the problem here isn't in the contact uh, and the ongoing support, it's in the idea and the message that you need to come and see me to remain pain for it. Yeah, that, that's where the shithousery yeah. kicks in. Absolutely. Shithousery. The shithousery of the highest order. Yes. <laughs> that's where people start to, you know, sell sickness and, you know, try yeah. to get people to part with their money for nefarious and devious means. But no, I'm, I'm the same with you, mate. I actually, I personally hate the term discharge in our line of work. Because I think it's been discharged from, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm not talking bodily discharges. (laughs) I'm talking about the discharge where you draw a line underneath the patient's episode of care. And you say, that's it. You're done. You're out of here. Get out. Get out. Don't don't ever come back. Fuck you. I've had enough of you. I personally don't like that, particularly with, you know, conditions that have a lot of chronicity, a lot of complexity. Yeah, or need managing over longer periods of time. Exactly. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, that very formalised, this is your last session, you're discharged, it, it just doesn't go well. And I think yeah. some patients do feel lost and then they get stressed and they get anxious about the fact that they're now discharged and they haven't got that point of contact with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that can actually may make them worse again. So I do think having that sort of open door policy yeah, yeah. You no, know, where you say to somebody, look, things are going well. Looks like everything's ticking along nicely. I don't think we need to see you as often now, if that's okay with you. Uh, how about, you know, we just see how it goes and you come in, you know, when you feel like you've got any concerns or questions. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. a nice starting point of just reducing the care. Yeah. I, I always say, I always say to patients, you kind of determine the frequency that you want to see me at. You know, so it might be that someone says, I don't need to see you anymore, Ben. And that's fine. And it might, and that could be after one session, but I don't know. I'm not there to dictate that they come in for however many times. But I, I regularly have people that, you know, pop up every now and again and just say, oh, I just want to bounce some things off you or can we talk about this or I've been having this little niggle. And I am their point of reference for care. Yeah, and I, they trust me and I've worked with them and, and that's fine. And it's nice and it's flattering to be in that position. And I think it's a sign of a good clinician when people do do that and they want to come back to the person again. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. As, again, as long as the message isn't unethical or immoral yes. and you're not being a shyster and you're not doing your shithousery, then I think it's uh, nothing wrong with it at all. One thing I do, I do the same thing as you, though, when you say to patients, you know, or, or the patient says, when do I come back? And I say, that's entirely up to you. You know, yeah, you, yeah. you tell me, when do you think you need to come back? Well, can I come back tomorrow? And I'm like, oh, right. yeah, oh yeah. okay. And I've had a couple of cases where that, that's cropped up and I'm like, okay. And then what my next question normally is, is why so soon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then again, yeah, what's going to change? Because, what am I going to do? <laughs> exactly, but normally, normally, what comes back after I ask that question, why so soon? It's like, well, I haven't quite understood what you were talking about right. there, or I right. so, okay. and I've realised I've done a shit job at trying to explain things, right. and the okay. patient's still uncertain and wants a bit more clarity or wants to yeah. go through something again yeah. in a bit more detail. And I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, that's my bad. I haven't done a very good job. <laughs> Let's get. I can't fit you in tomorrow because I'm very popular because I'm a specialist, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm a superstar. Um, I've got a waiting list of two months, don't you? Yeah, know? I'll see you in. Uh, I'll see you in 2023. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, you know, and we, but we've also got to recognise sometimes it's not always because you've done a shit job. It's because you don't have all the time forever to talk about everything, Absolutely. you know. So, yeah. so I think that's important. But I'm very open-ended with these things, you know, and actually that probably sometimes means that I don't get as much contact as I'd like. I generally would like to see people two or three times. I'd say that was my golden zone. But there are some people that see me once and don't, you know, and, and that seems to be enough for them. But I, I do think that at the minimum, I do like to have a follow-up. Yeah, and I agree, mate. I think sometimes there is that risk of when you say to a patient, you exactly. know, leave, exactly. leave, it, up, leave yeah. it up to you. They they sometimes feel, well, he's just washing his hands of me. He's dismissing me. I feel like I'm invading his time and therefore I don't want to bother him again. Yeah. So sometimes it, yeah, is, yeah. it is nice perhaps to take... I'm going to say the not the more domineering position. The lead, the wrong, maybe. Yeah, the lead. That's yeah, 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 yeah. But then I, I suppose, you know, I don't have an answer to this question. If I'm being honest, well, I um, think we've got we've had a couple of answers to this yeah, question. There yeah. isn't one. There isn't one answer to this yes, question. Exactly. I think that's the key thing. There isn't yeah. one definitive answer. Yeah. There are options here based yeah. on your patients and their presentations and the situation and the environment that you work in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'd like, I would say I'd like three sessions, um, but I, I do find that sometimes maybe, you know, just the way that I do things lends itself to less rather than more. He needs those three sessions to pay the down payment on the Ferrari. Yeah, exactly, people. <laughs> the vintage Ferrari. Yeah, there you go. Right. What's the, what's our, what's our third and final one today? Right, third and final one, a little bit of a juicy one. And again, from a regular BCP here who likes to ask us some difficult and awkward questions. It's our favourite Nor favorite Norwegian, although we don't want to really put him on that much of a pedestal because I've got a lot of favourite Norwegians, actually. Yeah, they're just generally better people than we are, aren't they? They are nice <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is coming from Martin, uh, Martin Christensen, and he has asked us about professionalism. What the hell is it? Yeah, great. I'm going to let you kick off on this one because oh, I I've got off. no fucking. You're asking me about professionalism. The man who has been accused of being unprofessional probably the most times out of any physiotherapy in the whole of history. I think. I think potentially that is true. Actually, I think you may have that honour bestowed upon you as being the, potentially the the most the most accused of being unprofessional. So. I think that sometimes when we are our genuine selves, which I think is an important part of being a good clinician, when you are your genuine self, for some people, if you don't fit into this box that we see as professional, people see that as um, problematic. So I think it's really, really important to be genuine. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Um, you know, whether that fits into what everyone else sees as professional I don't know. Professionalism for me is caring for people, being interested, being bothered, doing the best job that you can. It's not the way that you talk. It's not the way that you look. It's not the clothes that you wear. I agree, but unfortunately, I'm afraid, not a lot of people do agree with that definition, mate. Professionalism well, is often <laughs> seen as being, first and foremost, the way you present and talk and uh, you know, and, and say things rather than the actual context and your practices and your ethics and your morality. So yeah, which is a thing problem, of, isn't it? It's a massive problem. It fucks me. And, and what happens is that the reverse of this 
is <laughs> weaponized. So people use professionalism to be really unethical, nasty, mean, shysters, you know, absolute scum. But they are very polite and professional on the outside. Well, that's exactly how fraudsters work. It drives, but it happens it? in healthcare and it happens again, normally with people in positions of power and authority, particularly in our profession. They act all very professional, yet they are the most vindictive, nasty sons of bitches out there that would like to ruin another physiotherapist's career and reputation and livelihood just because he says fuck on social media every now and again. Yeah, but we'd probably go and watch a film where an actor said fuck or watch TV or... Absolutely. Yeah. It, it just drives me crazy because I just find that, you know, people... this this term professionalism gives mean and jealous people a shield to hide behind to be nasty cruel and feel armored in their pious virtue and it's just like just because you say please and thank you and you don't yeah. swear that doesn't mean that you can still be this nasty vindictive person yeah so yeah, absolutely. So I, I, you know, I think sometimes being too professional would mean you're going to be unrelatable to, you know, you could say that doctors are ultra professional, you know, in the way that they dress and talk and these type of things. And people often have a problem with interacting with doctors and consultants. Yeah, then, yeah you know, the amount of Steve the scaffolders and uh, Ethel's the housewives that I see who've gone to see some very professional healthcare person and just not got on with them at all and actually right, finds exactly. that they're just like they're they're cold, they're discompassionate, yeah, they're not sharing yeah. any information very well, they're just not bonding, they're just not yeah. forming a relationship with them. But and they, they want somebody that talks like them, acts like them. Yeah. 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 So, and this is the problem. I don't know, you know, whether it's to do with hierarchies and hegemonies and, you know, all these other fancy terminology. What the hell is a hegemony? Well, you're, a hegemony is your overriding, the, the overriding system, for want of a hegemony. better um, You and your fancy words, you've been sitting on that toilet with that special toilet roll, word of the day toilet roll. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I do think that we do need to stand up and say, what what are our values? What are our personal values? Because I think sticking to your values, and if they're good values, they are a sign of your professionalism. I don't think it matters whether you've got tattoos. I don't think it matters whether you've got piercings. I don't think it matters your gender. I don't think your sexuality matters. I don't think your race matters. I don't think your class matters. I, I don't think, think how you talk matters. I don't yeah, think your, exactly. the terminology, the phrases you use matters. 100%. Uh, and I think what, and you could say that a lot of those things are used to determine professionalism, mm -hmm. aren't they? You know, you're the wrong race, you're the wrong gender, and that diminishes your professionalism. Where, it's a form where of ism. Yeah. It's a form of, you know, separatism. It's a form of making sure that, you know, the people that don't fit into this conformist bloody way yeah. of acting are yes. able to be segregated and separated and, and ostracised, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, and I do, I think, look, I think professionalism, you know, I, should you abuse people? No. Should you have ethics in terms of should you touch your patients inappropriately? No. We can all agree on that. Absolutely. But I think, but a lot of the other things are what dictates 
you know, a lot of people may say, well, a man seems more professional than a woman. Someone who's white might seem more professional uh, than someone who isn't. And someone who's older might seem more professional than someone who's younger. Do you see these, these judgments that we make? Wearing a white coat might mean that you're more professional than wearing a pair of dungarees. But these things, for me, are much less important than who you are, what you do, how you care, and how genuine, genuine you are. That, that's for me, personally. And that's probably because I have come up against, you know, for, a, for an entitled white male, middle-aged white male, I suppose, you know, I've always come up against, you know, things like my accent, where people automatically think you're not very smart, you know, you're not very cultured, you're not, you know, all these stereotypes. Well, they're not far off the mark, though, really. Though. Oh, no, this is true. <laughs> um, but, you know, you do come up, everyone comes up against, you know, within my own white privilege, we do come up against our own little stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. So other people have got it much worse than me, and that must be, you know, really terrible. Absolutely, yeah. Classism is another form of ism as well. well absolutely, and I think one of the problems of, of often is that classism goes with things like racism, doesn't it? Because... Mm. You know, those two fit, fit in together because often people... Well, they normally they normally go hand in hand. I normally find if you've got one of the isms and you're a bit of a racist knobhead, you're also going to be a bit of a sexist knobhead as well. And you're also going to be a bit of a classist knobhead and probably be a bit ableist as well. So I probably find that, you know, once you've got one of them, it tends to be very easy to get many of them as well. Well, I think it... Yeah, and again, it becomes... If you're around people who enable that behaviour as well... You know, and I think sometimes that's why living where I lived in London in a very multicultural society, it was uh, you were less enabled to do that. Whereas some other places like where I live now, you're probably a little bit more enabled, um, which I can sometimes find a bit disturbing. But um, professionalism is a really important thing. And I think that, again, these are topics that don't get discussed enough and probably matter more than pathologies and psychologies and whatever other ologies are out there. Yeah, no, I agree. Professionalism, as I say, is uh, is something that does cause a lot of issues, I think, in various, particularly in healthcare with its hierarchical factors. And again, yeah. it is something that unfortunately, I think, has been weaponized by those in the positions of authority yeah. to be able to police and segregate and separate those that act or speak differently, rather yeah. than actually be used in a sensible way to say, these people are unethical, these people have got low morals, these people are doing things that are just absolute yeah. shithousery. You, you, could be, you could be an ultra-professional acting person but give really terrible treatment. Absolutely. So, Unfortunately, so way I say, once until that changes, I think professionalism, I say, is just going to be weaponized the wrong way. I think yeah. uh, well, it's Martin, Martin mentions in his question, he says he, he thinks it's a bit like pornography professionalism. In the fact that you, you can't really define it, but you oh, know yeah. it when you see it. Well, that's a classic, um, that's from a classic American um, court case, isn't it? Where they talk, we don't know exactly what it is, but we, um, yeah. So, I mean, I've always wanted to be a professional porn star. So Martin's got this absolutely bang on the button. Unfortunately, I was never given the equipment. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, they have some size <laughs> limitations there, Mr. Cormac, and I don't think you quite measure up no, to those no, uh, so I think minimum my... standards needed. Yeah, exactly. I think that is, yeah, totally. There, there's a minimum bar that I don't get over or under. Or, or under. <laughs> I don't know. But, yes, absolutely. I think we, we probably need to move away from uh, our stereotypical perceptions of what it is. Yeah. 
Good. All right. Well, there's three good, juicy topics for this month's Thoughtful Thursday. (laughs) As always, if you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to find out more uh, about the BCP, uh, then please come and join us, you know, find out, uh, say what else we do other than these Thoughtful Thursdays, where we dive on into everything in and around the clinical life, not just pathologies, not just rehab exercises, not just about pain education, but all the things that matter to be a better clinician. Yeah, come that- and join us uh, as soon as possible. Sounds like a TV show, doesn't it? The Clinical Life. Yeah. He's <laughs> got Ferrari down payments he needs to make, and so we need more members. Come and join yeah. us as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly. And otherwise, I'll have to do manipulations to make yeah, Otherwise, he's going to have to do maintenance sessions for yes. all of his patients. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. See, See you later. Thank you for listening to the BCP podcast. If you would like to check out the BCP, please go to www.betterclinicianproject.com. There we have literally hundreds of videos on clinical topics, exercise examples for rehabilitation and research reviews alongside features such as Thoughtful Thursday. And please tune in again.